Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to be back with you again this morning. It's great to be together. Now, today we're continuing on in our series we've been working through when people meet Jesus face to face. And today we get to see Jesus raise Jairus' daughter. We're going to now open the Bible together and read from it. So I want to invite you, if you have a Bible near to you or you have it on your phone, you'd like to take that out and turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be reading from verse 21 down to verse 43. Again, that's Mark chapter 5, verses 21 down to verse 43. And again, it's going to appear on the screen next to me as well. So I'll just give you a second to open to Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Mark records this. He says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease." And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And there were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So let's listen to James now. Well, I want to kick off this morning by telling you about a personal pet peeve of mine. I'll tell you, it's this. It's talking in the cinema. Now, I don't go to the cinema that much, but when I do... I want it to be a good experience and talking in the rows in front or behind to the side, it can just spoil it. Now I'm guessing you probably have a pet peeve, maybe it's being late, maybe it's when people take food off your plate without permission or people chewing 
Or, or, you know, that type of chewing when someone has a really clicky jaw. If you know it, you know what I'm talking about. Or, or, or people who don't use their indicators as they're driving their car, especially on a roundabout, and you just kind of think, wow, they must have a death wish today. Or, or paying for postage. Um, or what about somebody who bashes everything that you like? Or constant mobile phone distraction. You probably have a pet peeve, but mine is people talking in the cinema. And when I'm sitting there with my wife, Quince, I'm thinking to myself, just hand me that Coke. I know exactly where I'm going to throw it or who I'm going to pour it over. Maybe you know the feeling. But I've kind of grown in my compassion towards these cinema talking people. I've had to grow in my compassion and that's come since having kids. So when I'm sit sitting watching a film with my kids, they will ask tons of questions, loads of questions. Why? Because they're trying to figure out what the story is all about. You know how a, how a film could work, and I guess it's the same in many novels, is you're introduced to the separate stories of the characters, and sometimes it's very difficult to see how they all match together, and then eventually the story comes to a crescendo, and you see how these lives intertwine. And so when we're watching a film, they'll ask the question, well, who are they then? And why did they do that? And how did she get there? And who's he? And it's because they're trying to figure out the narrative and the flow of the story. And I think for a lot of people in the cinema who are talking and asking questions, I'm going to be compassionate and say, it's probably because they're trying to figure out what the story is. And that's how films work. You know it. You can be introduced to the characters and you find yourself asking the questions, how is this supposed to make sense? How are all of these lives intertwined? Who are these characters? Why did they say, I'm trying to make sense of this? And of course, as you move through the story, it begins to make sense usually towards some kind of a happy ending. Now, that's how I want us to think about this morning. There are a lot of different things going on in this passage. We're introduced to the stories of different characters, but we'll see how they weave and intertwine together to form one whole unit or one whole story. We will see distinct stories, but they are powerfully linked. We'll see different situations, but one magnificent Jesus in the middle of it all. I mean, these stories, we have Jairus and his dying daughter, and then an unwell woman. But we want to see these two stories kind of like twin siblings. You know, they're, they're different, but it's the same DNA that runs through the both of them. Now, Mark in his gospel, throughout this chunk in his gospel, is demonstrating the power of Jesus. At the end of chapter four, we see Jesus calming the storm. So Mark is showing us, look, Jesus is powerful over nature. And then last week, the first half of Mark chapter five, we see Jesus dealing with the demoniac. And he's saying, see, Jesus is powerful over evil. This week, again, we are going to see Jesus's power on display. But what is he powerful over? And that's the big question I want to ask this morning as we dive into this passage, is, is how, how does Jesus show us his power in the lives of these people? How is Jesus's power on display in this chunk of Mark's gospel? So here's how we're going to map this out in four parts. We're going to look at these two, two, two characters, these two stories. We're going to see, we're going to, we're going to meet the people. We're going to understand the pains. We're going to see the power and then we're going to hear the points. Okay. Four steps in these. Now, before we jump in, I want to kind of illustrate a way that I think will help us understand the way we're going to study this. And I want you to think about a fork in a river. 
Now, so often we love to go to our favorite place in the world, which is where my wife is from, Washington State. It's a great holiday destination for us. We love to unwind and relax and spend time with our family. I hope we'll be able to get there this year. And, and it's great for my kids to spend time with the other half of the family who live 6,000 miles away in the Pacific Northwest. But one of my favorite things to do is for me and my father-in-law to go hit the Nisqually River. Beautiful river, comes off a glacier, glacier on Mount Rainier and runs out into the Puget Sound. I mean, it's just a stunning river. And what we like to do is to pump up one of my father-in-law's really, really nice river dinghies. And we, we plunk our deck chairs in there. We have a cooler in the middle with supplies for the day. We have our fishing tackle boxes and then we have our fishing rods and we've got nice little holders for those and so what we will do we'll go down the river and most of the time it's just gently floating down the river and we'll be fishing for I don't know rainbow and cutthroat trout and there is fish galore in this river it's amazing but of course, like any river, there's going to be white water at some point. So we'll prepare ourselves, we'll bring the fishing rods in, we'll store those, get the, get the oars out, and then we'll make our way and negotiate our way down these, these, uh, this white water. Now, sometimes what will happen, particularly if it's our first float on the river for the, for the summer, we will find that there's been a new fork in the river being made. So during the winter months, there might have been torrential rain, and that created a split in the river. And so what my father-in-law will do is he'll kind of, when he sees it on the horizon, just coming up around the corner, he'll lean up right, right to the edge of the boat and have a look down the right fork. I mean, is, is there going to be a log jam? Is there trees falling across the river? Can we get down there? Maybe look over, lean over to the left-hand side. Is there any big rocks down there? Can we make it through? And right at the last minute, he'll give the call as to which way we're going to go. Right, Jimmy John, he'll say, grab your oar, we're going left. And so what I have to do, I dig into the right as hard as I can, and we'll jog the boat over to the, to the left-hand side and we'll make our way down that fork in the river. And then what'll happen is, the water will then meet again after the fork and it will carry on. I want us to see this passage just like that. We've seen the flow of Jesus's life up until this point, dealing with a demoniac. And then there seems to be this fork in these two stories, but they then meet together, together again to tell us some key things about Jesus's life. So, so these stories are connected, but what we're going to do is go down both sides of the river at the same time. So we're going to meet the people. We're going to understand the pains. We're going to see the power of Jesus at play in their lives. And then we'll meet and we'll hear the points of what this passage is showing us about the power of Jesus here. So let's do the first thing. Let's jump in and meet the people. First, let's meet Jairus. Now we see at the beginning here, right here in verse 21, that Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee again and meets a man called Jairus. Now he's described here as a ruler of the synagogue in verse 22, right there. Now, this shows us that he is a man of influence and of prestige, but it also shows us that the opposition to Jesus isn't completely comprehensive. It's not, it's not like every religious leader is like a predator hiding in the long grass, waiting for the opportune moment to pounce at Jesus. You know, religious rulers and leaders are still going to Jesus for help. Now, we read here that Jairus falls at Jesus's feet. Now, like a well-trained author, Mark begins to graphically narrate the pleading of Jairus, a father. And we, the readers, can completely feel the, the lucid intensity 
of the situation and, and the force and the punch of the emotion. I mean, it's not hard to feel the desperation and the helplessness that Jairus is feeling. Have a look at this in verse 23. There, you read right here. Then Jairus implored Jesus, him, earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And then beginning of verse 24, and he went with him. Lay your hands, Jairus's, Jairus's plea. That's what he's asking. Now, this is an emergency. It's a blue light situation and every moment counts. There's not much sand left in the timer. And if ever there was a time to panic in Jairus's household, it was right now. And so Jairus is he's beseeching, he's, he's pleading, he's imploring, he's, he's begging. Jesus, will you please do something now? Ever been in that spot before? Ever found yourself saying, please, just do something? Ever felt that sense of panic and the pleading that comes with it? I think for a lot of us, it's usually towards a doctor in an emergency situation because we feel entirely helpless. And the only thing we can do is plead with someone who might be able to do something. You know what? If there's a thread of hope, then I'm going to plead. And I really don't care how I look to everyone else around me. What we see here is without delay then, Jesus then makes his way with Jairus. He goes to his home to where his dying daughter is. And Jesus is thronged with a host of onlookers. And then what we find straight after this is just like the changing scenes in a film, the story pans to Jesus's journey and we meet the unwell woman. Have a look here in the second half of verse 24 down to verse 26. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but grew worse. Twelve years. Unwell for twelve whole long years. Now her story is different to Jairus. I mean, it's not a sudden panic and a pleading. It's a ground down helplessness that seeks a different answer than the doctors have given. Now, she's probably been through the initial frustration that comes with being unwell for so long. And she's come out the other side to live with a constant and perpetual sense of being fed up. Perhaps she's more than disheartened. But what's also different here is that we're not given many details, unlike Jairus. We get told where she came from, what her name is, is she still able to work? We don't get given that much, do we? But, but remember, when that happens, it's because the author is wanting to highlight something pointed, wants us to focus on something. And what we see in verse 27 is she then hears reports that Jesus is coming to town. And there's a close crowd around him. Jesus is surrounded by people like wasps mobbing a rubbish bin. I remember the day when the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II, came to Bury St Edmunds for the first time in my lifetime. I loved it. Me and my friends from school, I was about 16 years old, I think. We jumped on the bus, we had backpacks with supplies for the days, and we went and camped out on Angel Hill. And it seemed like the whole population of Bury and the surrounding villages were right there. We had a really good place just kind of under where the, where the entranceway to the Angel Hotel is. And everybody positioned themselves looking towards the Athenaeum. 
because the queen was due to come out. And then she did, the curtains opened, the windows opened, and out came the queen. And for a couple of minutes, she did her wave to the crowd. Everybody cheered and waved flags. And then she went in again. But there was an enormous crowd. Everybody just wanted to get a piece of her, to see her, and maybe even hear something that she had to say. See, Jesus is popular. People are showing up. People want to know him. He is surrounded. Now, what we find with this woman is that her problem is long-term. It has an, it's had an impact on her life, and she needs Jesus. Okay, we've met the people. Now, let's do the second part. Let's understand their problems, their, their issues. Let's understand the pains here. Back to Jairus. Now, you might already think we've looked at Jairus's pains. Well, not completely, because like any horror story, it gets worse. And when Jairus meets Jesus, he's helpless and he's panicked. But we soon find that he moves from being frenzied to then being frozen. You see, Jesus is on the way with Jairus when the woman touches the edge of his garment. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But this must have been such a frustrating moment. I mean, come on, Jesus. What are you playing at? You're supposed to be coming with me. Hurry up. We've got something to do, my daughter. But then in verse 35, he gets the news. Have a look at this. And while he was still speaking, that's Jesus. There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, as Jesus is, un is, is attending to this unwell woman, Jairus gets this news. It's this kind of news that would make your, your heart sink like a stone in a deep ocean. Like being winded and punched in the stomach. Frozen to the spot like a cast iron statue. Dizzy and disorientated as his, body's, his body physiologically responds to the sudden worsening of the horror story. He's ready to wake up from this nightmare right about now. But the news is this. Don't bother Jesus. She's gone. I mean, did, did Jairus feel like collapsing into a heap? Did he feel faint and overwhelmed? Did he go silent with that thousand yard stare as everyone around him waited for his reaction? Did, did he feel like booking at home as quickly as he could to just hold his daughter in his arms? Did, did his fatherly instincts to protect and fight for his kids, come counterintuitively crashing down like a demolished fortress. But soon after that, there is an opening of the can of hope. Jesus overhears and he butts in. And he says right there at the end of verse 36, oh, do not fear, only believe. Now there's more to this, we'll come back to it. But let's pan to the woman and let's understand her pains. Now, with this unwell woman, there are four things that we are told that compound together to make her life pretty miserable. Firstly, the illness. Now, now it's impossible. You know, when there's a chronic illness, it's impossible to feel joy and happiness. A lot of people say it feels like something switches off inside of you, especially when it comes to being around people. There's no energy left to connect because it's like a numbness, but it's far from being numb. Like you're always walking around in a rain cloud and other people seem to be basking in the sunshine. Other times with chronic illness, there's frustration and you feel irritated. It, it eats at you like a growing mold. It affects you so much that you become a new you. 
So much so that no one around you seemed to remember, seems to remember what the real you was like. Ailments and illnesses have a massive impact on us. Secondly, for her, we see the treatment. She suffered as much from the treatment as she did from her case of bleeding. Mark makes the observation here that she has seen loads of doctors. And like detectives on the wrong trail, they didn't make her any better. In fact, they made her worse. Now imagine how much that would have compounded what she was already going through. All of that frustration. Nobody seems to get this. Nobody can do anything. Third thing we see is the social distancing. And this woman was subject to tremendous social rejection. Now, the nature of this woman's illness fell under the rules of Leviticus 15, whereby she would have been labelled unclean. Now, this means that she had not only been unwell for 12 years, but she had been an outcast, an outsider for 12 years. She couldn't take part in any religious observances, nor would, nor would anyone want to go near her. Now, we know that three months of social distancing has been hard, but this is 12 years worth. The fourth thing we see is her finances. Mark tells us that she spent all of her money on the doctor biff, doctor's bills with no relief or help. The purse is empty and she would have had no critical illness insurance cover to fall back on. We're understanding the pains of these people. And can you see how the helplessness of people in the face of their problems as they go through all of this? And maybe you've even been there before. Maybe you know something of the helplessness. Maybe you've experienced that and can identify. Maybe you find yourself there today. But we're also seeing something emerge here. A genuine and living faith. Because a genuine and living faith looks to Christ in all circumstances. Remember what we said a few weeks ago. Faith is that act of grabbing a hold of Jesus. When everything else seems lost, knowing that whatever happens, Jesus is all that you need and you've got to get to him. But what we see here in both of these lives is we go from the bleak to the brilliant. That the storm cloud begins to part and the sun begins to shine through. Now we've understood the pain, but now let's see the power of Jesus at work. We're going to see that the, the, the one who shakes the mountains and opens the seas is the one who draws near to restore and set free. Jesus, the one who, shung, who, who, the one who hung the shining stars in space, is the same Jesus who meets real people face to face. Number three, let's see the power. Firstly, with Jairus. Now, now we see when Jesus is heading to Jairus' house, he only allows Peter, James and John to go with him. And they go to the house and they find people grieving. Have a look here in verse 39. And when he had entered, this is Jesus, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Naturally, they're going to think Jesus is crazy. I mean, who, who are you? you? You've just got here. You don't know. Perhaps you're even in denial of it all. But Jesus takes Jairus, his wife, and a handful of disciples, and he goes to where the girl is. Jesus speaks, he speaks words with mysterious might. Have a look at this in verse 41. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, this is Jairus' daughter, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. 
Talifakumis, it's an Aramaic phrase, and it's, a, it's an endearing address. In English, it might be sweet pea, little darling, honey, angel, treasure, sweetie, sugar, little poppet, get up. And then what happens? She, she gets up. So this, this is Jesus, the mountain mover, the sea splitter, the nation changer. But he's outdone that with a grander work. He's raised her from the dead. I mean, can you feel something of the roller coaster in Jairus's last little while? There's been the downs, there's been the deepest down, and then the thread of hope, and then the miracle of death undone. And, and here, Jesus is obviously told everyone in the room in no uncertain terms that he is powerful over death. Now, this passage finishes with Jesus strictly charging them not to go around and tell everyone. Well, now, why the secret here? Well, simply because Jesus' plan is still unfolding in the right time. Wow, the power of Jesus in Jairus' life. Now, let's see the power of Jesus with the experience of the unwell woman here. Now, Jesus is on his way journeying with Jairus when he's interrupted. And we find here in the passage that she grabs the touch, the, the edge. She touches the edge of his garment. Interesting. Why does she do that? For here's what I think is going on. Now, the end of the Old Testament, as we have it, is the book of Malachi. And in chapter four of Malachi, there is this hope of God's coming rescuer, deliver, redeemer, his Messiah. And it says the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And then, and then this prophecy talks about how God's people will, will jump around celebrating like calves that have been let out of the stalls. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of happiness and celebration and joy. But there'll be healing in his wings. Now, this word wings is the word kanaf. Now, that can mean quite literally the, the wings of a bird. We find that in the Old Testament. But the same word is often used to describe the edge of a garment or even a prayer shawl. So the edge of the garment is called a wing too. We read that all over the Old Testament too. So what that meant was by this time in history, God's people are looking forward to their Messiah, recognizing that there could well be healing even in the clothing of God's anointed one who is to come, the Savior there will be healing in his wings, healing in the edge of his garment. So you see, when she grabs a hold of him, yes, it's an act of desperation after 12 long years of chronic illness, but it's also a richly theological, theological claim. I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the savior, the rescuer, the redeemer, the deliverer. That's you. So as she touches Jesus, it says here, she just knows, she knows that she knows that she has been made well. And Jesus knows someone has touched him. So he asked the question, well, well who was it? <laughs> and everyone else around him is, well, well Jesus, look at, the, look at the crowds. How, what do you mean? No, I know, someone touched me. Now, now, Jesus isn't asking this question because he doesn't know. He's asking it because he's drawing out a response. And we find here that the woman comes forward in verse 33. But the woman, knowing what... But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And I love Jesus's response here. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And just like that, Jesus has changed her life completely. Now, now imagine, imagine now back to the river. We're watching the two forks of the river then join up again. 
Now imagine standing in the water and looking up the river and seeing two sides of the river cascading down and joining. Because we're seeing these two stories come together and we're seeing a truth merge through these. A truth coming out at the end of these encounters face to face with Jesus. This narrative meets and then flows onward. Now these stories are well connected here. Now who was it that Jesus raised from the dead? Jairus's daughter. And how does Jesus, how does Jesus address this woman in verse 34? Daughter. Jairus falls down at Jesus's feet. What does this woman do? She falls down before him. Oh, how, how, long, how long had this woman been unwell for? 12 years. And Mark makes the observation right here about how old the little girl is. How old is she? 12 years. It's showing us something. These stories are intertwining together to make a powerful and profound point. They're showing us something about Jesus's comprehensive and complete power. So we'll move on to the last bit. Hear the points. Now the, question, begin, the, the question at the beginning was, how does Jesus show us, show us his power in these people's lives? I mean, how is his power on display here? Answer is simply this. Jesus is powerful over sickness and death. He's powerful over sickness and death. Now, Jairus, what happens here? Jesus shows us he's powerful over death. Now, he, Jesus uses the phrase as he enters the house. Oh, no, she's only sleeping. He's using final resurrection language. And how true is this? In Jesus, the resurrection and the life himself has entered into Jairus's house. And then what happens right at the end? He gives the girl something to eat. I think this is pointing forward to Jesus's own resurrection. When after the resurrection, he sits on the beach and he cooks up a fish breakfast for his followers. Now, Jesus, we know, came to defeat death. And because Jesus has dismantled death, that means that while death still happens, it has lost its power. That's why the Apostle Paul can taunt death by saying, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Death, you don't have any hold on us. You don't have the final word because Jesus has undone the power of death. Now, therefore, when God's children are faced by death, we do it with an enduring hope. God's people, we don't have to spend our lives crippled and paralyzed by the fear of death. Why? Because Jesus has undone its power over us. I wonder, I wonder how many of us have been plagued, wasted way too much time thinking about the amount of days that we have and when it's going to end and 80 years if we're fortunate, but it's going to end, no doubt, plagued by that worry. And do we want to be set free from that menace? Yes. So we run to Jesus, who is the only one who provides hope through death. We see the power here. Jesus has power over death. But with the woman, we see his power again. But power over what? Power over sickness. You see, in this specific face-to-face -face encounter, Jesus is saying that he has power over sickness. Now, we know Jesus's mission into our world was not only to defeat sin and death, but also to defeat all of its effects in the world. That means just like Jesus's victory over death, sickness doesn't always disappear. We celebrate when it does. But what it does mean is that we get to look forward to a day when Jesus rest restores and renews all things. 
One day everything sad, everything painful will come untrue. The shadow of sin and sickness and suffering and death will be consumed by the brilliant light of Jesus over every mountain and in every valley. I remember years ago before my granddad died, we had a conversation about the resurrection. And my granddad at the age of 18, he had got polio and it had affected his body hugely. So by the time he reached his 50s, his 60s and 70s, he just lived with chronic back problems and he was in chronic pain the entire time. And I remember having this conversation with him about what the resurrection of Jesus really means. That it's an undoing, undoing of everything bad that came into the world through sin, sickness and death. And he says, what do you mean, James? Do you mean that one day I will have a new body? One day I'll be set free from this pain. Jamie boy, he used to call me. Jamie boy, does does this mean that the resurrection means that I am going to be restored? I said, yes, granddad, that's exactly what you mean. And he said, well, I think I'll take that, please. But this is for you too. That's why Christians hammer away at hoping in Jesus. Nothing else, no one else can give you anything like it. Did you ever find yourself having those experiences in your life where we say, I just, I just wish, I wish I had the power to retell a different story, a different ending to get out of this nightmare. You see, the entrance of sin and death and suffering in our world is the worst nightmare ever. But in Jesus, we know that he will come back to enact an end to all of this. He will write the ending. If you don't know Jesus, the suffering of this life will be the best it will ever be. If you do know Jesus, the suffering and the sickness of this life will be the worst it will ever be. You see, for God's children, we have this hope that the best is yet to come. And we can read about this, this enduring hope in Revelation chapter 21. Verse 3 to verse 5, and I love this. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jesus has a comprehensive power even over sickness and death. Now, you might be thinking to yourself this morning, look, I'm, I'm really struggling to see this. The passage is busy. It's quite chaotic. There was a lot in that. There's a lot of back and forth. Can you help me to see this better? Okay, well, then let's go to the cross. Because at the cross of Jesus, we find exactly what these face-to-face encounters are showing us, that Jesus' battle over death is a victorious battle. He wins. And he cries out from the cross, it is finished. And then he is resurrected, victory won. Therefore, we are confident that because sin and death are undone, then sickness and pain are too. This means then that just like the child in this story, Jairus' daughter, we too will hear the words from Jesus. Daughter, son, I say to you, rise. And in that moment, we will stand straight and sure with glowing faces 
bathed in the morning sun of the new creation, with repaired hearts, whole minds, restored bodies, experiencing the victory of Jesus. Jesus wins, even over sickness and death. Every ache, every misplaced word, every violence, every sin, every hurt will come untrue. Now this morning we've traced our way through these stories. They're etched with pain, but they're lifted to life by the healing of Jesus. We've met the people, Jairus and his daughter, and the unwell woman. We've understood the pains, the panic and the frenzy, and the ground down and just done. We've seen the power, a remarkable resurrection, and a remarkable restoration. And we've heard the points that Jesus is powerful over death, and Jesus is powerful over sickness. Now, saints, may we know the unwavering and freeing truth that even over sickness and death, Jesus has complete and comprehensive power. Well, it has been a joy to be with you again this morning. Now, as we go, please do remember, if there's any way we can be praying for you or be helping you in any way, please do reach out. We are here for you. But now, as we go as church family, as individuals, uh, may we hear the words being sung in heaven to Jesus, which say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Go in peace, saints.